We got the power company out here. Oh yeah, look, here we go. They hit one goddamn house. Yeah, I hit two houses. Wow. Right? Good morning, everyone. Good Monday morning. Good weekend. Good weekend. Monday, Good weekend. though. <laughs> You'll get there. Uh, we are glad you're with us, but we start with weather because there is a dangerous winter storm dumping quite a bit of snow on Southern California. That's right, Southern California. And unleashing tornadoes as it heads east, we are tracking the severe weather threat. Also this. We're confident that the Chinese leadership is considering the provision of lethal equipment. There's growing concern this morning that China may be ready to provide weapons to Russia. Could it be a game changer on the battlefield in Ukraine? What the head of the CIA is now saying. House Republicans taking aim at the Biden administration's handling of a toxic train disaster in Ohio. But we're now hearing about potential investigations and hearings on Capitol Hill. But we do begin with the dangerous and historic winter storm that is tearing across the nation right now. More than six feet of snow falling in parts of Southern California. Hurricane force winds whipping up blinding dust storms in Texas and powerful tornadoes ripping through Oklahoma and Kansas. Take a look at this. This is a scene out of Norman Oklahoma, just south of Oklahoma City, where a tornado touched down. Police and firefighters are searching through the wreckage this morning. They say at least 12 people are injured, no reported deaths so far. Listen to this woman who was inside her home with her family when the tornado struck. Before I can even blink, I could hear the wind coming. All of a sudden, all the back windows where the kids' bedrooms are, I could hear them uh, just crashing, busting out. And uh, I got up, and then the wind just threw me back, and I'm screaming. It was like a blizzard inside the house with all the debris flying. And I was screaming for my kids, you know, because they were in their bedrooms. <laughs> I didn't know if they were hurt or anything. I'm terrified mother Ed Levendera joins us this morning on the ground in Norman, Oklahoma. Ed, it looks terrible behind you. What happened? Well, this storm system ripped across this state in breathtaking speed, but it has left haunting images like these massive pieces of plywood left in trees. A massive storm system barreled through the central plains Sunday night. So traditionally, the southern plains and tornado alley, if you will, doesn't really start to come alive with these tornadoes and these severe weather outbreaks until maybe March, uh, especially April and May. That's the you know peak tornado severe season here uh, in the Southern Plains. But, you know, so this is a uh, quite an early uh, wake up call. Multiple tornadoes touched down in the region as well. In Norman, Oklahoma, a tornado caused down power lines and road closures. This is terrible to have this uh, tornado going through Norman like this. It's just past 48th and Lindsay moving up to the northeast and we're going to try to get back on I-40 and get out ahead of it again. We're going as fast as we can. That is not good right there on the west side of Thunderbird, guys. Oh, it's getting even stronger. The storm ripped roofs off homes and damaged cars. A lot of real strong wind. I was standing out in the garage. My wife went to the neighbors to get in a shelter. Uh, Wooden debris started flying and hitting things, so I jumped in the back seat of a car in the garage real quick. Two tornadoes were reported in Kansas on Sunday, leaving homes in the area destroyed. 
Winds in the triple digits were felt, the highest in Memphis, Texas, where winds hit a staggering 114 miles per hour, the equivalent of a Category 3 hurricane. In Lubbock, Texas, a dust storm rolled through, leaving visibility in the area to less than a mile. And in Albuquerque, New Mexico, winds topped over 70 miles per hour, leaving overturned trees and businesses damaged. I'm in shock, you know, but uh, because we love our restaurant, we, we love our work. This amount of damage with this wind, I haven't seen anything like this for the 20 plus years that I've been living here. This storm system started in California, where parts of Southern California saw a rare storm that dumped massive amounts of snow in the area. Huge snow totals were seen throughout the region, including Mountain High, which recorded 93 inches of snow through Sunday morning. Rain was dumped on other parts of California, causing flooding and leaving cars stranded. California firefighters were seen rescuing this driver by helicopter as floodwaters continued to rise. The storm left the ground so eroded that this RV fell into the Valencia River. I'm just kind of afraid we're going to have to evacuate if it gets any worse. And Poppy, if there is a couple of silver linings to all of this, the worst kind of storm damage like you're seeing behind me has been very isolated into the areas where some of these tornadoes fell down uh, rather quickly. So that is good news uh, in terms of just it's not widespread damage across the state. But and also uh, with this wind event and the intense winds that we've seen over the last 24 hours here in the state, there was a great concern of widespread power outages. We're about 30,000 customers in the state of Oklahoma without power this morning and we've noticed that that number has been dropping rather quickly in these overnight hours so hopefully that's something that gets under control uh, rather quickly for residents here in Oklahoma as well. Poppy. We really hope so. Ed Lavendero, thank you to you and your team for being there. Let's get to our meteorologist now, Chad Myers. Chad, this is some very strange weather. A friend in L.A. out of her home for three days. Her power was out, down trees in her neighborhood. This is in Los Angeles. Right, especially in the L.A. mountains, too, with all of that snow. Some spots over 60 inches of snow. It's the same energy, the same low pressure that moved through Oklahoma yesterday with a very serious situation here. And as Ed alluded to, over 100 mile per hour wind gusts. These storms, though, were moving at 80 miles per hour. Those are storms you can't chase. You can't get out of the way. When you hear your warning for storms like this, you must get in the basement or someplace safe. Here's 10 o'clock last night. There's Oklahoma City and Norman, especially. Now look where this storm is now. You could hardly drive that quickly to where it is now, to Little Rock, Arkansas. The severe weather will be to the east. Winds are still gusting about 55 miles per hour. The severe weather centered over Indianapolis and also over Columbus, Ohio. But look at this for 11 o'clock tonight. It starts to snow in New York City, and then it even begins to snow in Boston. I haven't really said Boston and snow in the same sentence all year. So this could be a one to five inch snowfall across parts of the Catskills, probably closer to two to four for the city and then two to four for Boston itself. We'll still watch this, but a slick morning commute coming up tomorrow morning for sure. Don. When was the last time you said New York City and snow right? as well or New York? I know. Yeah. Chad Myers. I was we'll probably check. there covering it. <laughs> right on. It's been a while. <laughs> Chad, thank you. We'll check back. All right. Also this morning, the CIA director, Bill Burns, says the U.S. is, quote, confident 
that China is thinking about providing lethal aid, aka weapons, to Russia for its war in Ukraine. Sources have told CNN that Beijing is considering sending drones and ammunition, but officials there have not made a final decision about whether or not they are ultimately going to do so. The spokesman for the Kremlin, Dmitry Peskov, weighed in this morning, declining to comment about these reports that China is considering doing so. CNN's Kylie Atwood is live at the State Department. Kylie, obviously, if China does ultimately decide to do this, it would have significant consequences on the battlefield, but also what it would mean just for how China is viewing this conflict and its place on the world stage overall. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it would draw China much more closely to Russia than it even is right now. Obviously, we know that there is a closeness in that relationship, but U.S. officials have said they believe that there's reason for China not to do this. What they're trying to do right now, Caitlin and Don and Poppy, is to publicly discuss the fact that they believe that China is seriously considering providing this lethal weaponry to Russia to be used in the war in Ukraine in an effort to try and deter China from actually going forward with it. Because what they say right now is that Chinese leadership has not made a final decision on this right now. The other thing that the Biden administration is doing is actually telling allies about this so that it's not just the U.S. that is in opposition, but there are other voices around the world that are saying that China shouldn't do this. And the primary concern here is prolonging this conflict. If Russia is able to get more lethal weaponry, U.S. officials are worried about this war going on for longer than it already has. Yeah, so obviously they don't want this to happen, but have U.S. officials kind of signaled what the consequences for China would actually be if they do ultimately make this decision? They haven't specifically publicly talked about those consequences. What U.S. officials have done, what the Secretary of State Tony Blinken has done, is privately told China exactly what those consequences will be. What they're doing in public is saying that there are going to be some really high costs that China would inflict. Listen to what the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said on CNN on Sunday about this. Beijing will have to make its own decisions about how it proceeds, whether it provides military assistance. But if it goes down that road, it will come at real cost to China. And I think China's leaders are weighing that as they make their decisions. Obviously, I think we could expect sanctions to be part of those costs, and that wouldn't be great for China, given the economic troubles that they are already facing. Yeah, we'll see what they ultimately decide to do. Kylie Atwood, thank you for that reporting. The U.S. Department of Energy now finding that COVID-19 was likely the result of a leak from a Chinese lab in Wuhan. That is according to an updated classified intelligence report. But CNN has learned the department only has low confidence in the findings. Other agencies assess it was a natural transmission. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says that the intel community is divided on the issue. President Biden specifically requested that the national labs, which are part of the Department of Energy, be brought into this assessment because he wants to put every tool at use uh, to be able to figure out what happened here. And if we gain any further insider information, we will share it with Congress and we will share it with the American people. But right now, there is not a definitive answer that has emerged from the intelligence community on this question. Well, China's foreign minister has responded, saying a lab leak is highly unlikely, but China has not been forthcoming about COVID origins here or there, I should say. And back here in the United States, the EPA has approved moving shipments of contaminated waste out of East Palestine, Ohio, where a train carrying toxic chemicals derailed earlier this month. It'll be sent by two Ohio cities, but one of those cities, mayor, says he is apprehensive. It's definitely a concern, and um, we want it done the right way. Uh, but uh, again, we're just going to be relying on, on them to guide us through this process. 
I should say it'll be sent by, it'll be sent to two Ohio cities. This comes as House Republicans vowed to dig into what they're calling the Biden administration's flawed response to the disaster. Soon as Lauren Fox joins us live from Washington, D.C. with more this morning. Lauren, good morning to you. What exactly are GOP lawmakers planning? Well, House Republicans looking to intensify their oversight over that toxic train derailment that happened earlier this month, specifically three committees aiming to look into this crisis and the Biden administration's response, including the House Oversight Committee, the chairman of that committee, James Comer, sending a letter Friday afternoon to Pete Buttigieg demanding documents, as well as answers to questions he has about the administration's response. You also are seeing some of that response coming from other committees, like the Energy and Commerce Committee. They have requested several things, including documents, information that is due in March, as well as other uh, information from EPA officials. They want some EPA officials to testify. They also want their committee members briefed and their uh, leading chairman in a subcommittee is asking EPA officials to come before that committee. That's because he represents East Palestine, Ohio, the Infrastructure and Transportation Committee, also keeping a close eye on the administration's response, Don. All right, that's what what GOP lawmakers are doing. Democrats plan to push back against GOP challenges? Well, I think that's part of it. I think bipartisan lawmakers agree that this is a crisis in East Palestine, Ohio. But the difference in the distinction you may see in what the Senate oversight looks like, of course, the Senate controlled by Democrats, is they're going to be looking specifically at Norfolk Southern, what they did wrong, and whether or not any past actions by the Trump administration may have had an impact. So that's really the difference in how lawmakers are viewing this. But it's important to remember, it is a bipartisan crisis that lawmakers on both sides of the aisle view this as a very serious issue in East Palestine, Ohio. Don? Lauren Fox, Capitol Hill, thank you very much. Coming up next for us on CNN this morning, it is being called the biggest abortion-related case since the overturning of Roe versus Wade. A federal judge in Texas will rule on whether to block the abortion pill. Paula Reed explains next. Look at that, a glorious sunrise this morning over New York City, beautiful sunset last night, too. We're glad you're with us here on CNN this morning. Uh, Let's take it to Texas, where a federal judge could rule as soon as today on a lawsuit seeking to block the use of abortion pills nationwide. The judge is a Trump appointee. Uh, His decision could halt more than half of the legal abortions currently being carried out in this country. Our senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, joins us now. This is fascinating. uh, you know, what what he's going to decide and the grounds on on how he's going to decide it. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, absolutely, Poppy. This is the biggest abortion case since the Supreme Court overturned Roe last year. This lawsuit was filed back in November by a group of anti-abortion medical associations and doctors, and it specifically targets the FDA's decades-old approval of mifepristone. That is the first drug in the medication abortion process. It's one of two drugs used for medication abortion. It blocks the hormone that is needed to sustain pregnancy, and it can be given as late as the 10th week. Now, as you just noted, medication abortion now makes up the majority of abortions obtained in the U.S., but this has become a flashpoint in the abortion debate in this country following the overturning of Roe. Now, specifically, this lawsuit wants a preliminary and permanent injunction 
ordering the FDA to withdraw its approval of this drug for chemical uh, abortions. And they also want to target any efforts to make it any easier to get because it used to be required that you would have to go to an abortion provider to obtain this drug. But the FDA has tried to make that easier. And Paula, what do we know about the judge in this case? Bobby was talking about, you know, how fascinating this is of what this is going to look like. What do we know about him specifically? It's a great question. And look, uh, abortion rights advocates are worried here. They are likely to face a defeat specifically because of who this judge is. Now, Judge Kazimerich, he is a Trump appointee, and he is someone who conservative activists have really sought out because in his tiny Amarillo division of the Northern Division of Texas, they know they are likely to get favorable results. I mean, this is called judge shopping or forum shopping. It is something that is commonly done, particularly in politically fraught cases. You Look for a judge or a district where you're likely to get uh, a win. Before joining the court, though, he was the deputy general counsel at what is called the First Liberty Institute. It's a nonprofit religious liberty group. He worked on religious liberty litigation. And look, though, any decision here to block access to medication abortion even on a temporary basis, it'll have an enormous impact in this country. And, you know, I also want to point out that there is a coalition of Democratic attorneys general who have come out in support of the FDA, and they make some important points. Uh, They write the availability of this drug has been particularly critical in providing access to abortion in low-income and underserved and rural communities where procedural abortion may be unavailable. They say eliminating access to this method will result in more abortions taking place later in pregnancy, further increasing costs and medical risks. All right. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Thanks, Paula. This is really fascinating. We'll talk to Steve Vladek about it a little bit later in the show. But the fact that this was filed in Amarillo, Texas, where they just changed the rules so that only this judge can hear the case. Mm. It's fascinating. And, And this does bring up the issue of forum shopping, which is, by the way, done by conservative attorneys and liberal attorneys. So yeah. we'll get into that a little bit. Yeah. It'll be fascinating to see what he actually decides. Yeah. We'll be watching that closely. Also this morning, we're tracking another major round of job cuts happening at Twitter. The social, social media company is going to be laying off 200 more workers than they did so over the weekend, actually. Now Twitter says it has fewer than 2,000 employees left at the company. That is down significantly. It was at 7,500 when Elon Musk took over the company back in October. The cut has hit production managers, data scientists, engineers, all of whose work keeps Twitter's features online. And the team that actually oversees how Twitter makes its money has cut from 30 people to now fewer than eight at the company. History was made several times at the SAG Awards last night. Skunodu Ulawu is here to break down the big moments. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, This is a really emotional moment for me. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. And the actor goes to everything, everywhere, all at once. Wow. I love Jamie Lee Curtis, Ah. by the way. Will it be every award at every award show, all award season for, uh, all award season long, I should say, for everything, everywhere, all at once? The Kung Fu science fiction comedy swept the Screen Actors Guild Awards this weekend with a big win for ensemble cast. 
Uh, Michelle Yeoh also won Best Actress. She is the first Asian woman to win in that category. And Ki Hui Kwan also made history with his Best Supporting Actor win. He is the first Asian male to win a film acting award at the SAG, or at the SAG Awards, I should say. So Jamie Lee Curtis also won Best Supporting Actress. Jamie Lee Curtis joining us now, host of Boston Globe Today, Shagun Oduwilowo. Good morning to you, sir. Amazing last night. Lovely to join you all from Boston. Does this mean uh, everything, everywhere, all at once, that it's going to get everything, everywhere, all at the Oscars? (laughs) All up in the Oscars? It it probably does. It probably does, because what it means, really, if you remember back in 2002 when Halle Berry won for Best Actress and then Denzel Washington won for Best Actor, the Academy and it seems as if the bodies, right, that everything seems to be all in mo- all in motion, and this feels like that type of momentum for this movie. Everything, everywhere at once, it, you know, it, it swept at the SAG Awards, and it's important because these are actors rewarding other actors. Uh, they thought that these were the best performances, and it feels like the you know it feels as if now they're acknowledging what they hadn't before, and this is it felt like 2002 when. Denzel and Hallie won. It feels like Michelle Yeoh and Mr. Kwan. This is their time. And with Michelle Yeoh, I mean, she's so fantastic. And what I loved about her being in this movie, I'm biased against this movie. I love it because one of the directors is actually from Alabama. (laughs) It's all anything in Alabama newspapers are talking about because they're so proud about it. But with Michelle Yeoh, you know, when she took this uh, took this role, she talked about what it meant for her because she felt like she got to show her fans what she was capable of, to do a different role than she had ever played before. And, and also just the historic nature of her win is, is so meaningful as well. Yeah, it, it's, it's the difference between having a seat at the table and building your own table, right? The writer, one of the writers and the director, he's, he's, an, he's Asian and the cast is predominantly Asian. And as, you know, as they said on stage, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, that's a good Chinese name uh, for her to be a part of this. But it's the difference between, hey, look, you know, can we can we join your party or we're going to build something over here? You come and join our party. What we're cooking over here at our table, you want to take a bite of. And so I love the fact that this movie did that for these actors, these actresses and said, we don't need to conform to what has been offered us in the past. We will do dynamic roles and you're gonna love it. Shagun, let's switch gears and talk about the NAACP awards and the President Awards specifically Mm -hmm. given to Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union. And they took this moment in the spotlight to speak out about equality, to speak out about their daughter, Zaya, who just recently got Mm -hmm. her name changed, legally approved by a judge in California. I want you to listen to what, what Gabrielle said. Zaya, as your father, all I've wanted to do was get it right. I admire how you've handled the ignorance in our world. I'm proud that I was chosen to stand in place as your father. And now stands with us again at the foot of a very new era of activism. A new era that demands our collective answer to one simple question. Will we fight for some or will we fight for all of our people? And I, it reminded me of, go ahead, go ahead. No, I, I'm, I'm clapping because every time I hear that speech, I love it. Yeah. I'm a parent. I have a three-year-old daughter. 
And what it spoke to me were the two uh, the two not polar opposite sides, but the two sides that need to come together when you are a parent. Dwayne Wade spoke as a dad who is proud of the strength that his daughter has demonstrated to be herself. Right. And he just wants to get it right. He wants to be an advocate for his daughter and learn and listen and do what his daughter needs. But Gabrielle Union took a different tone. Hers was a call to action, and it needs to be a call to action. And I believe she was speaking directly to the NAACP, which stands for the, Na- the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And that's all colored people. And LGBTQ+, plus, especially transgender youth that are of color, face an uphill battle. They face death. They face persecution at a rate higher than their white counterparts. And when she says, are we going to are we going to stand for some? Are we going to stand for all? It is the difference that it's the difference between saying, hey, we're going to push this agenda. You all stay over there in the corner. And for me as a dad, like my job as a parent is to create a world where my daughter can sit at all tables, any table she wants to with her head held high. And I loved what Gabrielle Union said, because that militant tone is what parents feel, especially parents of color, because there is a war going on outside and we have to fight it every day for our children. So our daughters can parade these streets and I will be darned if anybody else is going to rain on them. My daughter is my sunshine, but I promise you, I will be that sunshine to shine away the clouds of anyone who says anything about my daughter, whomever she chooses to be. I love what Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union said. A model for all parents and supporting uh, their children, especially members of the LGBTQ community um, and and trans as well. Listen, um, it shouldn't go unnoticed that Will Smith won the NAACP uh, award, Image Award Mm -hmm. over the weekend for emancipation. Um, That's his first major award since, you know, the whole Oscar thing. What do you think this means? To you, is it is it a turning point? Are people forgiven him? What do you think? I think it was a powerful moment that lost a little bit of steam. I wish Will had been there to accept the award because he was receiving it from his community. Right. The character of Will Smith, whatever you may feel about it, is immaterial to the character that he played on screen. Okay, whipped Peter and the pictures that circulated of his mutilated and scarred back, right, changed the way a lot of America saw what slavery was. And so playing this character is important because it's it's not a story that's told in the history books. And a lot of people didn't know it. So, you know, thank you, Will, for doing that. Winning this award, like I said, had he been there, I believe he would have gotten a standing ovation because it would have been the first domino to say, regardless of what the rest of the world thinks about you, your community supports you. Because think what you will, Will Smith is still a fantastic actor. He is a, he is a star, has been an A-list actor for a long time. He did his thing in this movie. And yeah, I just wish he had been there to receive the applause from people who are saying, we see you, you made a mistake, and maybe it's time for, you know, bygones to be got bygones. Chris isn't pressing charges. Him and Chris seem to have come to their own level of understanding. It will be up to uh, the viewing audience to see if they are ready to, you know, forgive him as well. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Shagun, we love having you here in person. It's okay having you remotely. We'll see you soon, though. But thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. All right. See you soon. <laughs> All right, also overnight, we're tracking what's happening in Ukraine. The Ukrainian Air Force there has shot down 11 Russian attack drones. Alex Marquardt is covering this for us live on the ground. 
Yep, coming up on CNN this morning, we are live here in eastern Ukraine with the latest on waves of Russian drone attacks that left at least two people dead overnight. Welcome back. Overnight, Ukrainian forces shot down 11 Russian attack drones, including nine in the airspace around Kyiv. At least two people have been killed and four others injured in a drone attack in Kamalinsky, a city that's about 200 miles southwest of Kyiv. These attacks are coming, as President Zelensky said in recent days. He does still believe Ukraine can win the war this year as long as its allies remain united and continuing delivering uh, weapons to Ukraine. CNN's Alex Marquardt is live in eastern Ukraine on the ground tracking these attacks. Alex, what are we seeing that's happening uh, overnight and on the ground? Well, good morning, Caitlin. Well, these 14 drones were these Iranian-made kamikaze drones that were flown at two different cities in Ukraine overnight. Khmelnytsky, which you mentioned, that's where at least two people died in a so-called double tap uh, attack. They were first responders responding to another drone strike when they were killed. Three others were injured. Eleven of these drones were fired at Kyiv, at least nine of them shot down by air defenses. Uh, but the sirens wailed for some five and a half hours because this was a multi-wave attack. Um, that is not normal. Normally, these sirens go for a, a couple minutes and are turned off. And it really speaks to the fact that in cities like this, where people are living relatively normal lives, they live under constant fear of these attacks. And it really does highlight the major security concerns around President Biden's trip to Kyiv last Monday. Yeah. And of course, the fact that those are the Iranian made drones comes as we're having the broader discussion about maybe China potentially providing weapons to Russia. Also, Alex, you know, we're hearing from Republican lawmakers who are being very critical of the White House because they have not sent the F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. President Biden actually weighed in on this to ABC News. And this is what he said about the idea of sending them. President Zelensky continues to say what he really needs are F-16s. Will you send F-16s? Look, we're sending him what our seasoned military thinks he needs now. He needs tanks. He needs artillery. He needs air defense, including another HIMARS. There's things he needs now. You don't think he needs F-16s now? No, he doesn't need F-16s now. Alex, that's just something that Ukrainian officials flatly disagree with. This is kind of like the, the debate over tanks, Caitlin, where the U.S. said that, that uh, Ukraine doesn't need M1 Abrams tanks, but they decided to give them to Ukraine in the end so that the Germans would release those, those Leopard 2 tanks. The U.S. standing firmly behind that line of President Biden that right now in this fight, Ukraine does not need fighter jets, uh, that right now the priority should be on artillery, on uh, longer range rockets, on tanks. Um, that if fighter jets are not necessary for this fight. They're not ideolo ideologically opposed to sending fighter jets. In fact, uh, I've been told that they wouldn't, it, it wouldn't bother them if other countries sent their fighter jets. But right now, the U.S. priority is on um, the, the ground fighting. Um, that is the priority, getting them stuff very quickly. And we are starting to see those shipments coming in. Um, a major sticking point right now is over the ATACMS. Caitlin, as you know, those are the longer range rockets that fly some 200 miles or, or 300 kilometers. Ukrainians saying they need those right now to hit Russian targets, to hit uh, command posts, to hit uh, ammunition depots, supply lines, uh, targets in Crimea. The U.S. has only sent rockets that go as far as 100 miles or 150 kilometers because there is a real American fear about uh, provocation, about uh, the fact that Russia would see those longer range rockets as an escalation. Now, Ukraine, of course, disagrees. So that is a major sticking point between the U.S. and Ukraine. Caitlin? Yeah. 
certainly a point of contention. Alex Marquardt, thank you. One of the things I thought was so interesting over the weekend is how dismayed some in Congress were on both sides, Mike McCall on the Republican side, that the U.S. isn't even going as far as starting to train pilots on these F-16s. Remember that general told us it takes a year to learn? Yeah. I talked to a White House official about this, and they said the idea that if they do train them on them, that basically that means they're going to give them to them because it, it's like you're not going to train them on them and then say you're not going to give them the F-16 jets. But, I mean, the other point, you know, to what Alex was saying is that the Ukrainian officials have said, you know, they believe they know better what they need and what they want, obviously. They, they would know better is, is the is their position. And you're right. What they say they need versus what the White House says they need is very different right now. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. Let's take you and talk about SpaceX because they just scrubbed their launch to the ISS, the International Space Station, at the last minute. It was set to make history. This was a four-person crew, including the first person from the UAE assigned to a long-duration mission aboard the ISS with about two minutes left on the clock called off due to a problem with the ignition fluid, which is used to ignite the Falcon 9's rocket engines at liftoff. As long as they get this fixed, they will take off on March 2nd. Straight ahead, the new warning from the CDC about a bacteria that is resistant to drugs. Dr. Chris Purnell standing by with everything you need to know. We're also tracking live pictures out of Norman, Oklahoma, one of my favorite places this morning after at least one tornado touchdown in the state. We're going to have more on the devastating storm, what it looks like ahead there on the ground. That's next. You just saw our office with the sun coming up behind us here in New York City. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. And listen to this, because there's a new and important warning from the CDC, an increase in infections with a drug-resistant bacteria called Segula. It can cause fever, abdominal cramping, even other severe gastrointestinal intestinal issues. Let's talk about this uh, with Region at Large for the American College of Preventative Medicine, Dr. Chris Brunel, doctor, good morning. morning. I was just trying to ask you everything about this in the break. Like, does it affect kids? <laughs> what does it mean? No yes. antibiotic works. What's going on? So shigellosis, which is um, an infection with shigella, um, typically infects children from the ages of one to four. But if you are an adult, which is a part of a vulnerable population, meaning you're living with HIV, you're immunocompromised, um, you live in a close contact setting, or you are a person experiencing homelessness, you have have a higher risk of being infected by shigella, and in particular with this extensively drug-resistant version or strain that we're seeing right now. Nice. Shigella is nothing new, I mean, no. especially for people who no. are concerned about HIV and all of that. It's nothing new, but this is just a one that is more drug-resistant, correct? Definitely. Which is... Which is very concerning, yeah. right? Because in 2015, 0% of Shigella infections were due to XDR, or extensively drug-resistant um, Shigella. Now we see that with an uptick, about 5% of those infections are due to this drug-resistant uh, Form. And with this drug-resistant form, you have such antimicrobial resistance that we have no clear recommendation around a treatment uh, paradigm that would effectively prevent if you had severe complications. Otherwise, it's usually a self-limited infection, and you just do oral rehydration. The other thing we wanted to ask you about this morning is this new at-home test. It's for flu and COVID, which is a thing that we've been seeing people testing for, especially now yes. that people are back out, you're not seeing as much mask wearing, people are traveling and whatnot. Um, How the FDA has authorized this at-home test now, how accurate do they seem to be? 
So these tests are pretty accurate, um, Caitlin. The best way for people to understand it, if it's testing for influenza type A, it's nearly 99% effective at identifying a negative result, is 90% effective at identifying a positive result. If it's looking at the COVID-19 samples, that effectiveness is about 100% effective at identifying a negative result and 88% effective at identifying a positive result. So that's good. So think about that. You're at home, you can purchase this test over the counter. We're during the flu season. You have these upper respiratory systems. You don't know if it's COVID or if you don't know it's the flu. This is a great way for a person to be able to tell. But they're pretty expensive right now, right? Yes, they are, right? And so that's the concern around accessibility. It's good that something what, is- over $72? Yeah, it's, it's good that something's over the counter, but if it's out of your price range, then effectively it's not available Only to you. Only from the manufacturer's website. Too. Yes. It's, look, I take a test almost every day. And so I go, oh, great, I'm good. I don't <laughs> but it could we, we be. We thank you for that. But it could be flu. Yes. It, it could be. Yeah. You could have strep. You could have a number of different things that you don't test for. Right. It could be the common cold. Right. right. So that's what I also. And it tell usually people. is. Right? <laughs> that's what I also tell people. But really, what's really good about this, Don, though, if you have this test and you're able to say, okay, this is flu, then you can get appropriate treatment for flu, or you can help to prevent the spread of flu. As opposed to if it is COVID, you can get appropriate treatment for COVID and go into quarantine or isolation. So that's why it's important for us in the United States to have more at-home rapid tests such as these available. Um, in Europe, you can test the difference. RSV, flu, or COVID. So we're a little bit behind the game in this. So this is a good milestone well, for us. Doctor, feel about this, though, because you don't have to go in, doctor. Well, I'm a preventive medicine physician, <laughs> so I'm in favor of health promotion and prevention. I, mean, right? I know exactly you what you mean, but we have to shift that paradigm. Yeah. It's important to understand it through a public health lens yeah. and not just a traditional clinical yeah. healthcare lens. So this is this is good. Good, doctor. Thank you so much. Thank you, as always, for all of your valuable insight. And straight ahead, why hundreds of newspapers across the country are now dropping the long-running comic strip Dilbert. More CNN this morning to come after the break. The men's swim and dive team from Howard University celebrating its first historic conference championship in 34 years. <laughs> the Howard Bison team has the only all-black college swim team in the country. Over the weekend in Geneva, Ohio, they won it all. 1.5% of African-Americans represented in college swimming. There could be a lot more representation um, in college swimming. So with us, you know, making a statement what we did this weekend, I feel like we could get more. We firmly believe if you can see it, then you can achieve it. And these young men and women work super hard day in and day out just because of that, because they know that there's very little representation out there. The Howard men broke 16 records and the women broke 15. So congratulations to the entire team. I love that they were getting down. They've, They've had the most cool. energetic swim meets all <laughs> season. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first I've seen, but I like it. It reminded me, I don't know if you guys remember that movie, Pride. It was a 2007 yes. movie. Um, Terrence Howard, Bernie Mac about this, you know, yes. they opened up the janitor, opened up this pool, and they were competing. It was great. Anyway, really great. Congrats. Yeah. Congrats. Congrats. We should have them on the show. We should. All of them. Producers. They should be dancing in the studio. Or maybe yes. we can go down and get in the pool. They're going to work on it. We'll That's see what they do. tell me. Good. All right. Thanks for staying with us. And CNN This Morning continues right now.
this is uh, quite an early uh, wake-up call for for people living on the southern plains. Uh, you know, the, the Great Plains are, are I guess, are, are ready to start producing tornadoes already. An early wake-up call for a lot of people all over the country. This is some very, very bizarre and dangerous weather that we have been dealing with over the last week or so. Good morning, everyone. Tornadoes in the middle of the winter. We're tracking a powerful storm after it tore through Oklahoma and buried parts of Southern California under feet of snow. Plus, the toxic train disaster in Ohio, tons of contaminated soil, literally tons of it, has to go somewhere, right? So where are these shipments headed? Coming up, how several stated states slated to receive that soil are pushing back. Also this morning, the fallout keeps growing for the creator of Dilbert. More newspapers have dropped the comic strip after the cartoonist went on a racist tirade. We'll tell you more what he said. All of that in just moments, but we begin with a destructive winter storm on the move. Two of them. Yeah, I hit two houses. The storm unleashing multiple tornadoes in Oklahoma and Kansas. One of those tornadoes tore through Norman just outside of Oklahoma City, shredded homes and injured at least 12 people. Hurricane force winds whipped up massive blinding dust storms in Texas. This was a scene in Lubbock. The storm buried parts of Southern California under more than six feet of snow. Let's take a look at these snow totals near Los Angeles and San Diego. More than 90 inches of snow recorded at Mountain High, a winter resort about an hour and a half outside of L.A. Warmer parts of Southern California were battered by heavy rain and flooding. Helicopter crew had to rescue this driver from a Jeep caught in the floodwaters. Look at that. And this driver had to climb up on top of his roof when the freeway turned into a river and his convertible became swamped. Straight out of scene is Chad Myers in the CNN Weather Center. Chad, wow. Where, where are these storms headed yeah. next? You know, the storms that moved through Norman, Oklahoma, about uh, eight hours ago, have now just rolled through St. Louis. I mean, I, tra- I challenge you to try to drive there that quickly. The interstates aren't, don't go in a straight line for the most part, but that would be a very quick moving storm. At times, these storms yesterday were moving at 90 miles per hour. The storm itself, and then the winds, obviously, in Memphis, Texas, almost Category 3. So here's the storm now moving to the east. So the real danger today is Indiana, Evansville, Cincinnati, all the way maybe toward Columbus, Ohio as well. Behind it, wind advisories. Winds going 55 miles per hour. If you're driving with that wind, you may not need to use the gas. There is the severe weather for today. Not as severe as yesterday. Something else that's going to go on on the colder side of this storm will be snow. Snow for New York City. Snow for the Catskills for sure. And even snow tonight into tomorrow for Boston. It may be a train day for tomorrow for a lot of you across the Northeast because the roadways may be very slow. Don. All right, Chad Myers. Thank you, sir. So the EPA is greenlighting contaminated soil and water shipments out of East Palestine, Ohio, this morning, where that train carrying toxic chemicals derailed earlier this month. That waste has to go somewhere, right? So it's headed to two Ohio cities for disposal. The agency halted shipments to Michigan and Texas on Friday after officials in those states complained that they had no prior warning of hazardous materials coming into their jurisdictions. Miguel Marquez has been on the ground covering this disaster, and he's here with us now. Thank you, and great job, your whole team. Thank you very much. Helping us understand what the people there are living through. Um, So they've got to move literal tons of soil, and now it can't go to Texas and Michigan. It's a real indication of how everything that's happening in East Palestine is having this outsized effect everywhere. Uh, 
high school teams canceling games yeah. in that area. Uh, Michigan and Texas that would normally receive these sorts of toxic materials, wastewater and or soil to dispose of it properly. Now it's become, it's like everyone's glowing in East Palestine. They are not. Yeah. The town is getting through this. It is going to take time. It's going to be a long, a long time in, in, in digging wells and figuring out which way the plume of, of water moves. They've tested almost 600 homes now, the air quality, they have air quality monitors in town. They're picking up none of those sort of uh, issues with, with air quality, but it's just gonna take time. People are frustrated because it gives their town a real black eye, yeah. but at the same time, they appreciate the, the, the attention the media is giving them mm -hmm. because it, it is bringing a lot of resources to East Palestine. Can I follow up on something you said? Sure. Explain this plume of, what do you mean? What, what so not only, were the, not, not only did the chemicals spill, but there was water next to the tracks as well, right. and then they poured millions of gallons right. of, of fire hoses and fire water onto that as well. So it created this just this massive area mm -hmm. uh, and tons of water. You, you saw the dead fish, you mm -hmm. saw the dead frogs, you saw some dead, dead birds. Lots of them did die in that immediate area. That water now seeps into the ground, so they have to dig wells around that to figure out which way under the ground that plume of toxic material will move if it moves. And so that's what they're dealing with right now. There you go. Do, do you, we, we had um, uh, last week, the Friday, the head of the NTSB on, and she had this urgent plea. Stop with the politics. This is about answers for the people of East Palestine. A lot of the political talk is about Biden should go, shouldn't go, should have gone, should go. Do, what do the people you talk to there want? They just want it cleaned up. They want to get back to their normal lives. You know, it's, a, it's a really, it's a, it's a town that was very, very well-to-do back in the days when they were making tons of pottery there. It's fallen on harder times, that whole Mahoning Valley, the whole yeah. area has. Uh, it is starting to come back. There's lots of, of, of new economic uh, uh, work being done in that area. But they feel like any sort of progress they were making is now being reversed. And so they want sort of the politics to go away. This is also an area. Do they look, care if the president goes? I don't, I don't think they really care. This is a, this is a, shows up. They just Columbiana want County, where East Palestine is, voted for, for Trump. Donald Trump by 68% in 2016, by 71% in 2020. The, the signs for him, they love Donald Trump. Joe Biden could be out there in a in a hard hat and protective gear and a shovel digging up, you know, toxic muck, I don't think it would make the, move the needle very much in this area. But they are doing, you know, Pete Buttigieg met with the mayor privately. After that meeting, the mayor, who had been very critical of, of the administration, said, you know what, I'm, I'm more satisfied than ever. I am cautiously optimistic that not only will we get through this, but East Palestine will be better because of it. Yeah. And President Biden has said he doesn't plan to go right now. They're not making plans for him to do so because other officials are going. But it does bring a spotlight to it when the president goes somewhere. There is no denying it's, that. It's a spotlight. And uh, I, I think that no one, because no one was injured, no one was killed in this thing. I think those are considerations that they make. They say they're not going now. But I think, you know, in two weeks, three weeks, I think things may look different. Who knows? Thank you, Miguel. You got it. We appreciate it. Well, meantime, speaking of politics, a House GOP lawmakers bound to investigate what they're calling the Biden administration's flawed response to the disaster this morning. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg made the trip to East Palestine last week. President Biden has said he has no plans to go there so far, prompting Republicans to demand accountability. MJ Lee live at the White House this morning with that. MJ, good morning to you. The White House responding. How, how are they responding to these investigations? 
Well, John, on these new threats of investigations and oversight from Republican lawmakers, the White House is saying there is politics at play and there's a good amount of hypocrisy, too. Uh, they are pointing to the prior administration and also some of these very same House Republicans as having uh, supported in the past deregulation of environmental protections and rail safety measures. Uh, broadly speaking, the White House, of course, has really been on defense uh, about this East Palestine train derailment that took place more than three weeks ago. The administration has uh, faced a lot of questions about whether it acted with enough speed, whether it has been engaged enough. And that is why we have seen the White House insist over the last few days that within two hours of learning about the accident, they had federal agents uh, out on the scene and actually taking in what had happened. And also over the weekend, the White House saying uh, various federal agencies were going uh, literally door to door to various residents in East Palestine to do health surveys, uh, to pass out information so that they know exactly what they can do if they are concerned about their health and have questions. Uh, but there's no question that the White House is making a full effort right now to try to quell some of the criticism that, again, the federal agent uh, government has not been fully engaged in trying to deal with this problem. You heard, MJ, our conversation about the you know, Biden administration of the president saying so far no plans to go yet. Anything that might change that? Yeah, you know, Don, at this moment in time, clearly the White House doesn't feel like a presidential visit is necessary. Uh, we saw the White House sort of talking about how the president still has been consistently engaged, has been reaching out to local leaders and offering federal help. And then, as you talked about with Miguel there, uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg visiting last week, that was a real effort to try to send in somebody uh, who was a big name, though he, of course, got a lot of criticism for not going there fast enough. But I think, uh, to Miguel's point, we will just have to see what the situation on the ground is like in a couple of weeks from now, because that might require that the president himself visit and really show that he is personally invested in getting this problem under control. MJ Lee at the White House. Thank you, MJ. Appreciate that. Also this morning, the director of the CIA says the U.S. is confident China is considering providing weapons to Russia to use in Ukraine, as officials are going public with that intelligence in hopes of deterring China from doing so. We're confident that the Chinese leadership is considering the provision of lethal equipment. We also don't see that a final decision has been made yet. There's no foreign leader who's watched more carefully Vladimir Putin's experience in Ukraine, the evolution of the war, than Xi Jinping has. Director Burns also said it would be risky and unwise for China to do so, as President Biden's national security advisor and lawmakers are warning of how the U.S. would respond if China did take that fateful step that they believe would prolong the war in Ukraine. Beijing will have to make its own decisions about how it proceeds, whether it provides military assistance. But if it goes down that road, it will come at real cost to China. And I think China's leaders are weighing that as they make their decisions. China needs to realize that if they want to be the world superpower they claim to want to be, they want to supplant the U.S., then they have to respect the rule of law or nobody will respect them and their own laws. Joining us now is CNN contributor and New Yorker staff writer Evan Osnos, who covers China closely and has written profiles of both President Xi and President Biden. Evan, you're the perfect person to have on this. And I think one question that people has is if China does decide to take this step, which they have not done so yet, what does it say to you about how the Chinese president is viewing Putin's situation and really just, you know, the international order overall? 
Yeah, Caitlin, I think that's the key point. In some ways, this would be a demonstration, it'd be a bit of a tell that the Chinese leader Xi Jinping believes that he cannot, in effect, afford to allow Vladimir Putin to fail in Ukraine. You know, they have forged this tight bond. It's a kind of circumstantial bond based on the fact that they both feel this sense of hostility towards the United States. But if, in fact, Putin fails, if Russia fails in Ukraine, that begins to draw into doubt the project that China is engaged in, which is to try to make a case that their political system, that the autocratic system, is a rival to the Western system. And so the decision to come forward by by the United States to talk about this intelligence is a sign that the U.S. takes very seriously the risk that China is on the cusp of making this choice. Yeah. And we talk so much about weapons here, but also a lot of this has to do with communication between these different nations. I sat down with the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin last Thursday on the eve of the anniversary. This is what he told me, though, about his lack of communication with his counterpart in China. I think it's really, really important to uh, to make sure that we maintain uh, lines of communication open. I think leaders uh, uh, need to be able to talk to each other to uh, avoid misperceptions and, uh, and, uh, and manage crises. And, and so this is really important. Uh, and, and so we hope that uh, Minister Wei will, will have a change of heart and, uh, and schedule that call. When was the last time you talked to him? The last time that I talked to him was a couple of months ago. So Wow. What are the consequences of that lack of communication? Well, exactly as you said, Caitlin, that is really astonishing to know that the United States at the highest levels of our military command does not have somebody on the other end of the phone who's picking it up in Beijing. That's worrisome. You know, in this business, this kind of high stakes business of great power coexistence and competition, having that hotline is essential to prevent an accident from becoming a calamity. And one of the things the U.S. wants most of all right now is to get the Chinese back on the phone in a regular, reliable way. And if that means going public and saying, look, we're paying close attention, let's make sure this doesn't become uh, the next great fulcrum of our, of our conflict, then that's what they're going to do. Yeah, and so much of this has been you know, the looming of the Cold War over this. And I loved what you wrote uh, in your piece in The New Yorker yesterday, but you talked about the perspective here and how different it is. You said, toward the end of the Cold War, U.S. trade with the Soviet Union was about $2 billion a year. U.S. trade with China is now nearly $2 billion a day. So as we see this and we see the decisions President Biden is weighing, but also how GOP candidates like Nikki Haley are weighing in on China, you know, it's a more complicated situation than it's always painted by them. It is. You know, in some ways, I think when we talk about the Cold War as Americans, it's it's a good news story for us. We won that Cold War. This is a very complicated moment. We are integrated with China's economy in a way we've never been with a rival in the world on this scale. And we have to be realistic. China is not going away tomorrow. It's not about us or them. Honestly, it's about us and them and figuring out a way that we can contest their moral vision of the future and also put in the kinds of guardrails, the kinds of channels of communication that prevent us from from uh, getting into a conflict that we don't want. Yeah. On another note, Evan, you spent a lot of time with President Biden before he ran for president in the last election. You wrote a book about about his run. He has not yet declared that he's running this time, but he seems to be saying, and as he told David Muir in his ABC interview last week, that he has a few other things that he wants to get out of the way to finish before he seems to make that announcement. What is your sense of, you know, his deliberative process? What is going through his mind is in your view right now. Well, he is, anybody who's spent time with him knows he doesn't make this kind of decision 
in a hurry. In fact, he sometimes can drag it out a little longer than some of his advisors would like. But look, he, at the end of the day, the thing that is most important from his perspective in making this choice is does he think he is the best Democrat to be able to run and win? So this is a live matter from his perspective. You see him going around the country, going to places to try to demonstrate that Democrats have not forgotten uh, workers to show that they're making the kinds of investment in manufacturing and supply chain that can bring people back into the workforce. He wants to tout a few more of those numbers, job creation and so on. And if he feels that he is, in fact, the one who can win and there's nobody better, then I think you're likely to see him take the plunge. Yeah, I believe that will be happening sooner rather than later. Evan Osnos, thank you for your great perspective on two uh, critically important issues. My pleasure. A major drug bust in Arizona. Authorities seized more than four and a half million fentanyl pills, about 3,000 pounds of methamphetamine, and very large quantities of heroin, cocaine, and fentanyl powder. The DEA says the drugs have an estimated street value of $13 million. Investigators also seized 50 firearms. Arizona's attorney general warns fentanyl is flooding the border. Listen. Yes, this is this is a, a, a significant bust, but there is a lot of, of this drug coming across the border. It's killing our kids and destroying and tearing our families apart in Arizona, but it's also impacting the rest of the country. And so we need every law enforcement agency, every attorney general along the border, but also across the country to be laser focused on stopping this fentanyl. And just look at the numbers. Look at your screen. For years, drug overdose deaths from prescription opioids have been rising in the U.S. In 1999, there were about 10,000 opioid-related deaths. 22 years later now, they've climbed to more than 80,000 deaths from this year. Wow. Yeah. It's good that they made the bus. Terrible it's happening, but yeah. good that they were able yeah. to see so much of it. Let's That's hope true. they get more of it uh, off the streets there. Comic strip Dilbert dropped from hundreds of newspapers after the creator goes on a racist rant where he advocates for segregation. Editors say it was an easy call, but hear who is defending the creator. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, so here we go. Newspapers across the country are dropping the Dilbert comic strip after its creator, Scott Adams, went on a stunning racist tirade this weekend calling black Americans a hate group and advising white people to stay away from them. Seen as Polo Sandoval has the story this morning for us. Polo, good morning to you. What's up with this? Yeah, guys, good morning to you. So basically, he is doubling down on the comments that he made earlier this week, saying that they were completely taken out of context. The newspapers, though, that ran his strip for decades are now severing ties with him, saying that his comments were part of a racist tirade. If you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, uh, that's a hate group. That was the comment that may have ended Scott Adams' newspaper career. The Dilbert creator referencing a poll from the conservative firm Rasmussen Reports that indicated 53% of black Americans agree with the statement, it's okay to be white, leading the other 47% to say they disagree or aren't sure. The Anti-Defamation League has noted that that phrase has a long history in the white supremacist movement. The best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. 
He continued to double down throughout his show. The Washington Post, Los Angeles Times and USA Today among the hundreds of newspapers that denounced Adams and quickly pulled Dilbert. USA Today newspaper CEO Mike Reed. It was frankly uh, an easy decision. We found the remarks, you know, hateful, hurtful, and, and they just crossed the line. But not everyone agrees. Twitter CEO Elon Musk coming to Adams' defense, tweeting, the media is racist. Adams has since tweeted that he was only advising people to avoid hate and suggested that the cancellation of his cartoon signals that free speech in America is under assault. We believe in free speech. We believe in creating uh, a place for differing points of view. But there's a line that gets crossed where things become racism and and that's not a, an, an area we choose to, to traffic in or participate in. We did reach out to the company that was responsible for distributing that comic strip. Still waiting to hear back, guys. But I have to tell you, after watching hours and hours of his latest streams, it's really hard to gauge exactly how worried he is. I'll tell you why. Um, he loves attention. It's not me saying it. He actually said it over the weekend on one of his streams. Uh, and he also recognized that he was completely aware that this was basically going to open up the floodgates uh, and it, when he made these bombshell remarks. So... Uh, he is getting a bit of what he wanted, but the question, will it be more than what he bargained for, especially since he says that he expects to lose a majority of his income in the coming days, right? There are many times when, when people are taken out of context or they need explaining or whatever, but his comments were, that's not with, with these comments. He, he keeps it, saying, that's not what I meant to say, but it is exactly what he said. He calls it useful provocation. He wanted to start a conversation, guys, but there are many ways to start a conversation about race in America that doesn't include calling a, a black Americans um, what he called them. So, so I think that this will be certainly one to watch. And as you continue to hear major newspapers, not just here in the U.S., but around the world, dropping the strip, what will he do next? Yeah, and it's important to note that the poll that started all of this that he was talking right. about, it, they are not talking about their data. There's people have cast doubt on, you know, how in accurate general. it is and what it looks like and Absolutely. if people are trying to vote in it uh, to change the outcome of it. So I think that's an also an important yeah. context of what he's even talking about in the first place. Really Does important. he say he's being canceled? Is that what he thinks? That's what he says. I wonder if he's perhaps seeing himself as sort of this free speech martyr. Um, again, we'll have to see as more of these newspapers drop his work after decades, over 30 years. Mm -hmm. Free speech comes with consequences. It does. Yeah. Thank you, Polo. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. All right, also this morning, the theory that COVID-19, the pandemic, started with a lab leak in China has now had a new development as after the Energy Department has updated its assessment, suggesting that it was the likely cause. The intelligence community is deeply divided over it. We'll tell you more next. And a wooden boat carrying more than 140 migrants destroyed by the rocky waters off the southern coast of Italy. Women and children this morning among the dead. We have the tragic details ahead. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up for us, there's a new poll, and it suggests one thing economists can agree on is that there's no agreement on where the U.S. economy is heading. Our Christine Romans is here to make sense of these varying outlooks. Also, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis releasing another book this week, Is This a Step? in his bid for the White House. And snow in Southern California, tornadoes in the middle of winter. We're tracking this powerful storm as, as it tears through Oklahoma. Take a look at this, this new video Wow, just in from Norman. Two homes with roofs ripped off. Neighbors will now have to pick up the pieces. We are live from Norman, Oklahoma, just ahead. 
Also this morning, new intelligence has prompted a notable change in the Department of Energy's report on what most likely caused the coronavirus pandemic. The Energy Department now says that a lab leak is the most likely origin, according to this updated report. But there's some really important context here. Sources tell CNN that the agency says it has, quote, low confidence in the assessment. A low confidence assessment usually means that that information is not reliable enough or really kind of just too fragmented to make a more definitive judgment. The FBI has come to the same conclusion as the Department of Energy with moderate confidence. But several other American agencies believe that the pandemic started with natural transmission, though they also have low confidence in those assessments. The CIA, it's still undecided. So, of course, a major question is, will we ever know the origin for sure? Something that is obviously vitally important. CNN's national security reporter, Natasha, Ber- Natasha Bertrand, and our CNN correspondent, David Culver, who actually reported from the epicenter of the outbreak in Wuhan at the beginning of the pandemic, are both joining us this morning. No two better to talk to this, to people to talk to this about. Uh, Natasha, when we get this update from the Department of Energy, the major question that I had that a lot of people have is, what changed? Why are they now making this assessment, even if it is with low confidence? It's a great question, Kaylin. And the bottom line is that we just don't know what new intelligence the Department of Energy has gleaned here to make them change their opinion, right? Because previously they did seem like they were undecided. Now it appears that they have shifted their assessment to a low confidence assessment that this uh, virus did uh, originate in a lab. However, as you mentioned at the top there, it is a low confidence assessment. And that indicates that the intelligence really was not strong enough for them to make any kind of more definitive judgment about where this virus actually came from. But it is notable because it just adds right to the split that we're seeing in the intelligence community about where this virus originated. And right now, it seems like we just don't have any good answers as to uh, where this came from, primarily because the U.S., has had a lot of difficulty in getting China to cooperate with this investigation, right? Without that kind of on-the-ground presence by the U.S. intelligence community, by scientists in in Wuhan, where this virus is believed to have started, it's really difficult for the intelligence community to have any kind of real kind of smoking gun uh, as to where this virus originated, short of, say, intercepted communications, for example, which the IC does not seem to have at this moment. David, you went. I mean, you're one of the few people who's actually gone to that lab in Wuhan. Can you speak about how difficult it was to get any information there and how you think about that visit, given this new information? Poppy, three visits uh, to Wuhan since the start of this outbreak for us. And I look at some of the video that you've been playing and you see just how many security guards are often out front of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That's one of actually two labs that is suspected as a possible location from which the virus originally leaked from, the other being the Wuhan CDC. And you've got so much security there and presence there, uh, perhaps more secure than any other office building or government location here in D.C., and that shows just how sensitive of an issue this is for the Chinese. And when we would go, for example, we would have in the lobby of the hotel that we'd be staying at at least half a dozen security agents who, as soon as they would see us, would continue to follow us out the door and then around the city in Wuhan, a city, by the way, that's larger than New York. You're talking about 11 million people. And trying to get information there was next to impossible. As soon as we would get close, of course, security would wave us along. I made more than half a dozen attempts to talk to some of the scientists involved at the WIV, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You don't get a response beyond saying, we'll consider your request. And then after that, they stopped responding altogether. It is interesting to note, though, the location. If you look at the circumstantial evidence, it is overwhelming. So while the concrete science data may not be there, and as Natasha pointed out, there's no smoking gun, the circumstantial evidence 
is there? And that is mostly looking at the geography here. We were at the Wuhan Seafood Market. That is the place that is believed to be the original epicenter mm -hmm. and the original outbreak location. That place was secured as soon as we were there in January of 2020 and remained that way until this day, really. They're starting to reopen it slowly. But then you look at where the Wuhan Institute of Virology is compared to that market. It's about a 30-minute drive. Take the CDC, the Wuhan CDC lab. That's two blocks from that market. So that in of itself, Poppy, mm. is, is one of those things you have to look at, and, and it raises a lot of questions to this day. It's interesting that you, you know, are saying this, because if you, I remember the beginning of, of this, and we were right. doing all these diagrams and maps about wh where it could have started. There was a pangola involved, and do you right. remember all of those things? So it's gone from, oh, yeah. it's gone from the market to now the lab, the lab to the market, and, and back and forth and back and forth. And even this weekend, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, uh, is saying that, you know, that the intelligence community remains divided on the matter. I'm just wondering what China is saying right now about this, Natasha, because, again, there's been so much back and forth about how this started. Yeah, well, they are actually responding just this morning, saying that uh, it is still, in their opinion, very unlikely that this emerged from a lab. But of course, the WHO, the Biden administration, Western governments writ large have said, look, it is impossible really for us to get a definitive explanation here without your full cooperation. And I just want to read you uh, a sentence from the 2021 intelligence community report uh, that found really no definitive evidence either way, primarily because of Beijing's lack of cooperation. It said the IC and the global scientific community lacks clinical samples or a complete understanding of data from the earliest COVID-19 cases, China's cooperation most likely would be needed to reach a conclusive assessment of the origins of COVID-19. So again, without this kind of on-the-ground analysis by the U.S., by Western governments, by uh, really anyone who wants a definitive explanation here of what happened, it's going to be really difficult to come to that final uh, judgment, guys. Can we but David, everyone... Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Everyone wants to know what to yes. prevent this from going from happening again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and so and in order to know that, you'd like to know the origins of this, but it's become so politicized within China, one of the most sensitive issues, that it's very unlikely that you'll ever get to that level of cooperation that Natasha was talking about. I mean, the Chinese look at this as something that has become so severely politicized and become a geopolitical issue from the U.S. perspective that they've launched their own propaganda campaign against it that has been relentless. I mean, they point to a lab outside of Washington, D.C., Fort Detrick, so they say, yeah, there is a lab leak we're talking about, but it's one in the U.S. And then the U.S. Army, one spokesperson for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in China, had said, brought it over to Wuhan in 2019. No evidence of that. And of course, that's just something that they've been putting out into the narrative to muddy the waters, to sow doubt and deflect blame here. That cooperation that you talk about and trying to get international scientists together, they did have a field study. It happened in January of 2021. The WHO went there. And yes, as the Chinese pointed out this morning, they said it's highly unlikely this started from a lab in Wuhan. But the WHO also asked to go back for a phase two. The Chinese said, that is not going to happen. They denied that request. And even early on, as the WHO field team was there on the ground in Wuhan, guys, they were denied a lot of the data firsthand. So imagine trying to investigate a crime scene. And this was pointed out to me by one of the investigators. And you're sent there a year later after it was heavily sanitized and essentially wiped clean. Yeah. Obviously, there's an origin of it, but it could have been, look, there could be a number of things, but it could have started in the lab and then the, the market could have been a spreader 
so to speak, yeah. maybe into the community. Someone carried it from the lab to there. So we'll so hopefully we'll figure it out. Hopefully. Maybe. I. All right, Natasha and David, thank you both for, for that yeah. great conversation. It really is an interesting look. The intelligence leaders will actually be testifying before Congress yeah. in about a week, and they are definitely going to get asked about all of this. Thank you, guys. Well, this morning, 62 migrants are dead and dozens more feared missing after a shipwreck in the rough seas off southern Italy. The vessel broke apart after hitting rocks off the coast of Calabria. Uh, migrants from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, and Iran were on board. Rescuers say around 80 people were saved from the water clinging to pieces of a wooden boat. The Calabria region president says that the tragedy could have been prevented. It is a day of grief for Calabria. This is a struggle that falls into a general indifference. Calabria is a region that welcomes people. Last year we welcomed 18,000 migrants, but we can't be abandoned by Europe. This type of tragedy should have been avoided the day before and not lived how we are living it today and how we will live it tomorrow. Many of the migrants were fleeing very difficult conditions, including poverty, violence, and war. Well, coming up, is the economy primed for robust growth or a recession right around the corner? Economists cannot agree. Christine Romans, though, is going to help us understand where we are. Okay, take a look here. You've got two scenes. Uh, this is the Midwest. You've got uh, Eau Claire. There's some rain in Chicago as well. Uh, snow in Eau Claire this morning. This is this big storm that has been just barreling across the country. We'll keep a close eye on it. Just devastation in Oklahoma in particular. Meantime, the consensus about the U.S. economy right now seems to be confusion, right? Everyone's confused. A new national survey of economists shows that the outlook for the future varies widely from recession to robust U.S. growth. CNN anchor and chief business correspondent Christine Romans is here. I've been doing this a long time. I've never seen such a diverse set of forecasts for the economy. It's really wild, and I think it sort of vindicates what we talk about every day here, how confusing so many of these number, numbers are. I mean, you look at these are business economists. So these people work for companies and big think tanks, and their job is to inform corporate America, about what's happening in the economy. This is their forecast for GDP for, for, um, for this year. 2023 should be that first one there, right? Down 1.3%. That's a recession, a, a recession that hurts. To up 1.9%, which is, you know, meaningful growth. And for next year, barely moving a stall in the economy to a robust 2.6%. So you really have the most divergent bunch of statistics I think I've ever seen in my career. Tomorrow is a huge day at the Supreme Court. It is. Tell us why. President Biden's student loan forgiveness. This was a campaign promise kept, right? He was going to forgive $20,000 in student loan debt for people who meet a certain uh, income, income range. And this is what he said was so important about that, that student loan forgiveness. Listen. All this means people can start, finally crawl out from under that mountain of debt to get on top of their rent and their utilities to finally think about buying a home or starting a family or starting a business. And by the way, when this happens, the whole economy is better off. Well, when this happens, it's more like if this happens, because the Supreme Court has to take this up this week. It has been, uh, it has been challenged here on constitutional grounds. What is really interesting to me is that for 
almost 40 months now, the student loan payments have been paused. And that has been really important for a lot of, a lot of families, a lot of people who are really living close to the, to the budget, where, right, where the money doesn't last the month. At the end of this process, it could be the Supreme Court makes this decision and then those, Supreme Court, those, those payments, student loan payments, have to pick up again. That could be happening at a time when we're looking at a lot of economic uncertainty this summer. So it's really a crucial moment here for the president's student loan uh, uh, pay down yeah. plan. Okay, so they're hearing the arguments tomorrow. Yeah. You know, 40, this is important to 43 million people exactly. who have student loans, including me. Yeah. But when, it, when they're going to hear this tomorrow, we're not actually going to find out till June or July yeah. what the actual decision yeah. is. We'll right? find out for sure this summer. And we'll okay. be looking for any kinds of indications, look at what kind of questions the, the, the justices are asking about this particular thing. I will say that the, the, ener- or the uh, education department has been working on income-based repayment changes and asking for feedback from the public on those. So there are some things the White House hmm. is trying to do, some fixes behind the scenes, some simplification that I think will matter a lot to people with student loan debt. But there's more than a trillion and a half dollars in student loan debt in this country. It is a big, dangerous bubble. Mm. And even if there is this student loan forgiveness plan that the president has here, if the Supreme Court were to allow it, you still need to talk about what's the problem that made all that debt in the first place and how we're going to fix it going forward. So this is a a conversation that's really still just beginning. And it affects people who can't afford it the most. Poor people, minorities. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly right. Saddled with... There are others, but for the most part, the majority. Thank you. Nice to see you guys. Good to see you as well. Lovely to see you. So Florida Governor Ron DeSantis releasing a new book this week. Is this an unofficial launch to his much-anticipated bid for the White House? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is releasing a new memoir called The Courage to Be Free. Even though the courage to be free sounds like a black history book he's banned. (laughs) That's right. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis releasing a new book. And it comes ahead of a highly anticipated 2024 bid for the White House. And just in this morning, DeSantis releasing a video that seems like a presidential campaign ad without actually being one. Watch. Florida is proof positive that we, the people, are not destined for failure. DeSantis wins. He has made a promise, and he's making good on the promise. Florida is leading the nation. We are the nation's fastest-growing state. We rank number one in education freedom. We are number one in economic... So, Steve Cordorno has been reporting on all of this, and he joins us now. Music is a little crazy there, but uh, Steve, we'll talk about all of that, but... The point with this book and this new video, that's the question. When will he announce his run? Not is he going to, but when will he? Exactly, Don. You don't release a book like this unless you're seriously considering running for president. And all of the steps he is taking lately seem to point in that direction as well. Last week, he held what looked like campaign rallies in, in Pennsylvania and Staten Island, just outside of Chicago. Last weekend, he huddled with a bunch of his uh, political advisors and donors in Palm Beach, where the subtext to the entire event was his political and presidential aspirations. And now this book comes out uh, tomorrow. He's got a whole book tour planned to it. He's going to be across the country uh, rolling it out. He's already promoting it on conservative media, really. You're seeing the sort of uh, cogs working on what a presidential campaign might look like. 
I was, uh, Steve, reading your great piece last night about DeSantis's book that he wrote more than a decade ago, which was interesting. It was like basic, not really about him and his life. It was a sort of step-by-step critique of President Obama's ascent to the presidency. But here's your line that struck me. You wrote, it's an instructive window into DeSantis's governing beliefs, which at times seem to collide with his current leadership style, but may soon inform his platform as he seeks higher office. What does it tell us? Yeah, and that book was called Dreams from Our Founding Fathers, which obviously sounds a lot like President Obama's uh, memoir, Dreams from My, My Father. And, you know, it, it was a full-throated defense of the Tea Party, uh, of limited government, of separation of powers. It was really critical of President Obama for... You know, he said overreaching and using the bully pulpit to to force his political views on people and uh, using executive powers in ways that we have not seen before in the country. And that's was his case. You know, and flash forward uh, more than a decade later and Governor Santos has often led in that style. You know, he is using the, the power of the executive branch to force his will on a lot of uh, state institutions and businesses here. He was critical of Obama, the sort of messianic language around Obama. And the last ad of his presidential site, or excuse me, his, his campaign for governor last year was a suggestion that God made him on the eighth day. So really you see the evolution from someone who was uh, very committed to sort of constitutional limited principles mm -hmm. to what he has become, which is very much in the Trump style of using uh, as much of the executive power as you have to, to get your agenda across. And obviously one big question that remains about DeSantis that even Republicans have is, is what he looks like on the national stage, how he's tested there. Uh, a main audience for this book, Steve, also seems to be donors, which is going to be something that all these Republicans who are running for president will be going after. You know, he talks about how his view on corporations, how they should respond to what, you know, he refers to as this woke culture. Obviously, we saw what he did with Disney and the way he's basically framing Florida. You know, what did you read into that over how he handled that and how that translates to what he would look like on the national stage? Well, when you talk about donors, Caitlin, it certainly hasn't scared any of them away so far. We've seen some of the biggest donors in the Republican Party from the last uh, midterm cycle already pouring money into his campaign. Uh, he has received $4.5 million from three different uh, donors in the last month alone. Uh, he has $71 million left over from his previous campaign. A lot of that came in the form of checks that were greater than $100,000. So as far as scaring off the titans of industry who are who might be a little perturbed by what he did with Disney. So far, we're not seeing that in terms of how much money is rolling into his campaign. In fact, this past weekend in Palm Beach, like I said, a lot of these people were huddled up with him right in Trump's backyard. These are people who gave to Trump in previous cycles, now aligning themselves with DeSantis as he ramps up his activity. Mm -hmm. right. Steve Quarterno, thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it. CNN This Morning continues right now. I got up and then the wind just threw me back and I'm screaming. It was like a blizzard inside the house with all the debris flying. And I was screaming for my kids, you know, because they were in their bedrooms. <laughs> I didn't know if they were hurt or anything. Just awful to hear that. It's the worst feeling to wake up to. Good morning, everyone. That is Oklahoma City where tornadoes, floods, more than six feet of snow. We are seeing a destructive 
winter storm that is wreaking havoc as it moves east. We're going to take you live to Oklahoma where a powerful tornado touched down, as you just heard from that woman there. Plus, there is growing fear that China may sell weapons, so lethal aid to Russia to help turn the tide in Ukraine, what we're now hearing from the head of the CIA. And where did COVID actually come from? The White House is responding to a new U.S. intelligence report that points a finger at an accidental lab leak in China. We'll get to that in a moment, but we're going to start this morning with the massive winter storm that is unleashing extreme weather as it tears across the United States. Multiple tornadoes touched down overnight in Oklahoma and Kansas. One of them ripped through the city of Norman, just south of Oklahoma City. It shredded homes, picked up cars and tossed them. The storm pummeled Southern California with huge amounts of snow and rain. Some places were buried under more than six feet of snow. You see the videos here as freeways were turning into rivers. This driver actually had to climb on top of his Porsche after it became swamped and he was left stranded. Just north of Los Angeles, several RVs were swept into a river when the riverbank eroded and gave way. More than seven inches of rain fell in Ventura County. That's northwest of Los Angeles. A helicopter crew had to rescue a driver from a Jeep, as you see here, as car got stuck in these fast-rising floodwaters. Ed Lavendera is live on the ground in Norman, Oklahoma. Ed, I've been to Norman a bunch of times. I love the people there, and I know this is the worst thing to wake up to dealing with these storms, and they happen overnight. It's often the toughest to be able to make sure you're in a safe place. Well, I've always said there's nothing worse than the overnight tornadoes in the dark. You have no idea really where it's coming from. And this is what the neighbors and the residents in this neighborhood are dealing with. Uh, trees about a foot in diameter snapped in half. Take a look way up there in the tree, about 30 feet high, a giant piece of plywood uh, stuck in the branches there. That is rooftop that has been shredded off people's home. You see, it gives you a sense of all of the debris that was flying around here so wickedly and here in this backyard uh, really gives you a sense you can get in here because the fence has been completely blown out but this particular home fortunately the owner of the home was in Tulsa at the time uh, but this was you can also get a sense here of you know when you're inside your home and the tornado is coming just the force uh, that these storms and the wind uh, brings about 70 to 80 mile per hour winds were being registered throughout the uh, evening as these storms were approaching in the Texas Panhandle in a little town called Memphis, there were wind gusts of 114 miles per hour recorded last night. That is where the beginning of this storm really kind of generated. And this line just moved through Oklahoma incredibly quickly. But uh, the force of this uh, tornado that touched down here in the Norman area, blowing out windows, uh, ripping off uh, homes, uh, the, the, the rooftop of, of homes as well. The good news, Caitlin, is that much of this is very isolated. So as bad as this looks, if you go just a, a, about a half mile or so east or west, it's a completely different picture. So that is you know, some of the good news. Last we checked, there were close to about 30,000 customers here in the Oklahoma area without power this morning. And those numbers have been dropping rather quickly. But it was an intense night of storms. Um, racing through the state of Oklahoma. And this storm system stretched from Texas all the way up through the Central Plains, a very dramatic sight uh, for this February. Yeah, it's always just striking to me to see when a tornado hits and you see one side of the road where everything is destroyed and then the other side it looks like like nothing happened. It, that is the timing here, though, that's unusual, I think. The idea that this is happening, you know, we're here the end of February. And uh, did it catch residents off guard? What are you hearing from people as they're waking up and assessing the damage this morning? 
Uh, they've been hearing about it all day. You know, the 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 alerts of the the wind. There was a great deal of concern with the the wind uh, and and the, and, and the intense wind that was expected throughout all of this. But uh, the, there was a local news coverage uh, of these events happening for hours and hours ahead of this storm. So there was a great deal of warning uh, um, about this. And as we were driving here, we got into the Oklahoma City area last night. I drove around for several hours. It was very quiet. Of course, it was a Sunday night, but uh, I thought it was a little bit, you know, quieter than normal. Um, and, and I think that's probably an indication of, you know, people know very well what to do here in this state when these types of uh, weather systems come blowing through. Yeah. And let those Sooners fans know we are thinking of them this morning. Ed, thanks for being on the ground there. The U.S. Department of Energy now finding that COVID-19 was likely the result of a leak from a Chinese lab in Wuhan. That is according to an updated classified intelligence report. But CNN has learned the department only has low confidence in the findings. Other agencies assess it was a natural transmission. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the intel community is divided on the issue. President Biden specifically requested that the national labs, which are part of the Department of Energy, be brought into this assessment because he wants to put every tool at use uh, to be able to figure out what happened here. And if we gain any further insider information, we will share it with Congress and we will share it with the American people. But right now, there is not a definitive answer that has emerged from the intelligence community on this question. This foreign ministry has responded, saying a lab leak is highly unlikely, but China has not been forthcoming about COVID's origins there. Top U.S. intelligence officials are warning that China is considering supplying Russia with lethal aid in Ukraine. Listen to this. Well, we're confident that the Chinese leadership is considering the provision of lethal equipment. We also don't see that a final decision has been made yet. Beijing will have to make its own decisions about how it proceeds, whether it provides military assistance. But if it goes down that road, it will come at real cost to China. And I think China's leaders are weighing that as they make their decisions. Let's bring in our chief national security correspondent, Jim Shudo. Jim, good morning. Thank you for being here, given all your experience in China. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting, our viewers just heard from Bill Burns, ahead of the CIA, is that Margaret Brennan on CBS, who interviewed him yesterday, pointed out, you know, just as recently as February 2nd, you guys were saying that China was reluctant to give this aid. That was the word he used then. Now it seems like a dramatic escalation in terms of the U.S. concern. Do we know why that yeah. is? It seems they have some new intelligence, uh, and, and it's interesting. It's part of a broader strategy of the U.S. intelligence community, like we saw in the run-up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, of lifting the veil on what they know in hopes of changing the calculations of the leaders involved. Uh, it did, certainly didn't change Putin's calculations on invading Ukraine. Their hope is here by saying, hey, listen, we know you're considering this now. Here's how you're going to pay for it. Mm. And beginning to hear from folks like Janet Yellen and others to say there's going to be an economic cost to this. Uh, but, but big picture, I always look at this. Why should folks at home care about China entering this war? This is already the biggest war in Europe since World War II. It's bloody. It's long. There's no sign of it ending. You already have two superpowers on opposing sides, in effect. Russia invaded the U.S. supporting Ukraine, if China were to provide lethal assistance to Russia to help it in this war, this would enter another superpower, not directly into the conflict, no Chinese soldiers or warplanes, but China as a uh, sort of a proxy here, right? China involved in this conflict and, and supporting one side. It just expands 
the potential for for escalation and just the broader tensions here between between the superpowers, which are already, as we keep reporting every other day, right? You know, with balloons and so on, uh, already going in a, in a very dangerous direction. Yeah. Jim, before um, the the invasion, Putin, um, mm-hmm. and before Putin invaded Ukraine, the Biden administration publicly released this intelligence showing that Russia is showing what Russia was preparing to do. I'm wondering if they would consider doing the same thing if uh, on China's plans with Russia. They may, and we know they were considering it. I mean, there was some discussion of this last week, considering uh, it, telling us, in effect, why they know that China uh, is, is considering this. They haven't done that yet. Uh, they seem to be comfortable with at least saying, we know, uh, and here's the cost that you would pay. Uh, but they're doing this on a number of fronts. I mean, you, you look, for instance, the, the public comments this weekend on U.S. understanding of Russia's relationship with Iran in, in this war. We already knew that Iran was supplying uh, drones that have had a big effect in Ukraine. Uh, now there's discussion that in return, in effect, Russia is promising Iran potential help on its missile program. Have a listen. Russia is proposing to help the Iranians on their missile program and also at least considering the possibility of providing fighter aircraft to Iran as well. So it's, you know, quite disturbing set of developments. Be a big deal, right? Because you're talking already the U.S., its allies, Israel, etc., view Iran's missile program, its potential nuclear program as primary threat to stability in the Middle East. If Russia is now in return helping Iran develop that program. It just shows you how the war in Ukraine, the effects of it, the ramifications of it can and seem to be sadly developing in a much broader, more, more dangerous direction. It's, it's, um, you know, it's a difficult time right now. It's, it's not just about Ukraine. It's about a whole bunch of other countries. And that is such an important point here, because mm-hmm. often when we talk about support for U.S. You know, aiding Ukraine, softening what that looks like, what we're hearing from lawmakers. Yeah. This is not just an issue that's happening in, in Eastern Europe. There are these broader implications of what the world order is going to look like if China does decide to get involved, what it means for Iran and Russia and how that alliance has gotten so much closer. It has these massive implications. It does. And listen, you know, we, we, we grew up in an era last 30 years. This is post-fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Relative peace, right, in Europe, you know, relative peace between the U.S., NATO, and Russia. That, that's over, right? You know, clean break after the, uh, the full-scale invasion last year of Ukraine and things going in a troubling direction w- with China. You know, concerns, genuine concerns that China invades Taiwan, China sending surveillance balloons over the U.S. Listen, doesn't mean we're going to war, right? But you have increasingly hostile relations here and folks kind of aligning themselves, right, on each side. China with Russia in Ukraine, Iran uh, with Russia in Ukraine, Russia perhaps with Iran on its nuclear program. And these are, these are things to watch really closely. Jim, thank you very much. We'll see you at the top of the hour. Thank you. Will do. About an hour from now, court resumes in the double murder trial of Alex Murdoch. The defense will call its final witnesses after Murdoch spent two days on the stand. He admitted lying to investigators and stealing from clients, but says he is telling the truth that he did not murder his wife and son. Since Randy Kay, live in Walterboro, South Carolina, with more. What's the latest? Good morning to you, by the way. 
Good morning, Don. Uh, the latest is this crowd here behind me. You can see this is how much interest there is in this uh, court case. These are people who come from near and far hoping to get a seat inside that courtroom. They show up early and they wait here until they can get inside. But the big deal was on Friday, Thursday and Friday, when Alec Murdoch testified. Finally, Don, after more than 20 months of lying to investigators, he did admit that he was at the kennels uh, where the murders took place on their property around the time of the murders. He told the prosecutor that he left his phone at the main house on the property when he went down to the kennels. He took the golf cart down there, was there for a couple of minutes, left the kennels at 8.47 p.m., got back to the house at 8.49 p.m., which is when prosecutors believe Maggie and Paul were killed. Then he said he took a nap. It was a very short nap because his phone started showing activity again 13 minutes later at 9.02. And prosecutors found that very curious. Here's that exchange from court. You would agree with me that from 9.02 to 9.06, your phone finally comes to life and starts showing a lot of steps. I do agree with that. What were you doing? I was getting ready to go to my mom's house. That's far more steps in a shorter time period than, than any time prior, as you've seen from the testimony in this case. So what, what were you so busy doing? That's Going to the bathroom? No, I don't, I don't think that I get on a treadmill? went to the bathroom. No, I didn't get on a treadmill. And what I wasn't doing is doing anything, uh, as I believe you've implied, that I was cleaning off or washing off or washing off guns or putting guns in a raincoat. And I can promise you that I wasn't doing any of that. And it's when he returned from his mom's house that he said he found his family, his, mom, his wife and son, shot and bleeding at the kennels. Randy Kay, thank you very much. Well, coming up, a ruling that could halt more than half of the currently legal abortions being carried out across the United States. Why so much attention is being paid to the judge, the federal judge in Texas, about to issue his decision. Also, support the party nominee or get off the stage. Will every Republican candidate make the loyalty pledge? We're going to talk about it with Dana Bash next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. As soon as today, a federal judge in Texas could issue a ruling that would put a nationwide ban on the abortion pill, at least temporarily, this pending decision comes in a lawsuit that could reverse the FDA's two-decade-old approval of mifepristone. That is the first drug in the two-drug medical abortion process. Medication abortion accounts for more than half of all current legal abortions in the United States. And this is the most consequential abortion-related case since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade last May. And this case rests in the hands of a U.S. District Court judge, a federal judge, Matthew Kaczmarek. He is a Trump appointee. He was opposed by Republican Senator Susan Collins and all Democratic senators. He was opposed by her over his record on LGBTQ plus and reproductive rights. Back in 2013, though, then Attorney General Eric Holder presented him with a Justice Department award for his work as a U.S. attorney. He has critics, and to, they are not surprised that he got this case. He has presided over 95% of the civil cases brought in the Northern District of Texas. One Democratic senator says anti-abortion advocates are gaming the system. Here's Ron Wyden. And with this judge, they found a way to make it happen. Because of how judges in this federal district 
in Texas are assigned, the plaintiffs could use a procedural loophole and hotwire the judicial branch. They could ensure Kazmarek was the only judge who'd get the case. It is part of a larger pattern of conservative groups, quote, judge shopping or forum shopping. That's according to my next guest, Steve Vladek. He recently wrote about that in an opinion piece in The New York Times. He is our legal analyst and a constitutional law professor at the University of Texas Law School. Good morning, Steve. Morning, Bobby. How are you? Good. Let's start with what this case actually means, because I think people need to understand what the plaintiffs are arguing here and how likely it will be you think they succeed. Yeah, I mean, so at the heart of the case is basically the idea that when the FDA approved Mifepristone way back in 2000, it was doing so only against the backdrop of a constitutional right to pre-viability abortion, which, as you know, was the law of the land then and is not the law of the land today. And so the argument is that basically last year's decision in Dobbs getting rid of that right basically pulls out the foundation from under the FDA's approval of Mifepristone if that argument succeeds, if Judge Kaczmarek issues a nationwide injunction against the FDA, we could see consequences overnight, even in the bluest of blue states when it comes to access to mifepristone. And it's pretty likely, right, that the Fifth Circuit would uphold the ruling of Judge Kaczmarek? I, mean, I think it depends on, on what the ruling says. But, you know, even as that process plays out, I mean, it's no coincidence that all these cases are being brought in Texas because then appeals go to the very, very conservative Fifth Circuit. But even if the, the opinion and the decision is so far out of the norm yeah. that the Fifth Circuit might reverse it, that's going to take time. And it's time during which this injunction presumably will be in place. That's unless the FDA, of course, runs to the Fifth Circuit or the Supreme Court mm -hmm. and tries to get a stay. Um, and the burden for that's even higher. So I think the reason why there's so much attention on Judge Kaczmarek here is because he could, if he goes all the way, issue a ruling that really would have seismic effects, at least in the short term, for women all across the country. Well, what do you make of the fact that we just heard from Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, who's also saying essentially something pretty stunning, Steve, right, regardless of your politics, that the FDA should just ignore this? He's basically saying, wait until it goes up to the Fifth Circuit or to the, to the Supreme Court, ignore it. And the Wall Street Journal editorial board called him out for that, saying it's dangerous business, calling it the widened legal nullification doctrine. And they said, talk about norm busting. What do you think? Well, so I, I think first we should stress that the Wall Street Journal rather mischaracterized Senator Wyden's proposal. Wyden's not saying that the FDA should ignore the courts in their entirety. He's saying it should be up to the Supreme Court, not a carefully handled. Well, he's saying don't listen to it until, if and until it reaches the Supreme Court. And so I think, you know, I think I think that would be norm busting, Poppy. I think the question is whether those norms are already being busted by the litigants. I mean, keep in mind, as you said at the top, you know, this lawsuit was filed in Amarillo entirely so that it would be assigned to this one specific judge who since September has been receiving 100 percent of new civil cases filed in Amarillo. You know, I'm not a defender of Senator Wyden's position here, mm -hmm. but I think it's understandable why folks would think that one response to the kind of norm busting of handpicking judges and not subjecting their lawsuits to random assignment would be norm busting in the other direction. That's part of the problem here is that yeah. it's a race to the bottom 
where what we really need is a more sensible approach to this kind of nationwide litigation. And it's not really just, and as your piece, which was so good a few weeks ago in the New York Times, points out that this is happening, I think it's important for us also, in fairness, to note that during the Trump administration, you had a number of liberal attorneys filing cases for nationwide injunctions against Trump Mm -hmm. uh, rulings to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals because they thought rightly so, that the Ninth Circuit would be favorable to them. So liberals are doing it, too. Yeah, I, mean, I guess I would just say two things. One, I think that's true to a degree. Um, the big difference is that what was happening during the Trump administration was not this kind of handpicking of individual judges. So when California, for example, would challenge a Trump immigration policy, it would usually file in a courthouse in which it was subject to the random draw of 11 different judges. Now, Poppy, those judges might have been generally more sympathetic to California than to the, than to President Trump. Yeah. But again, I think that's the difference between forum shopping and judge shopping. But either way, even if folks don't think that's a distinction worth a difference, what it really underscores is that we ought to revisit just how comfortable we are with having outlier judges at either end of the political spectrum who have the power to basically bring nationwide policies, in yeah. this case, one that's 23 years old, to a screeching halt, whether Congress should revisit exactly the ability of litigants to to shop in that respect. That's a really good point, Steve. And I hope a lot of people are listening because I think Ken Paxton has filed so many of his cases in Amarillo where the rules just changed. So only Judge Kaczmarek is the only one who can rule on these things. Um, We'll be watching. Thanks very much, Steve Vladek. Thank you. Caitlin. And as we track that major decision, new this morning, Michigan Democratic Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin has just announced minutes ago that she is running for Senate in 2024. She's going to be seeking to replace the retiring Democratic senator in that state, Debbie Stabenow. Slotkin is now the first Democrat to jump into the key race in a battleground state. It's also a race that could determine the power and control of the Senate in 2024. Slotkin says that she is running because, quote, we need a new generation of leaders that think differently, work harder, and never forget that we are public servants. We should note in this race that the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and also Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who recently moved to Michigan, have both said they will not run for the spot. Also, someone else has a new campaign-style video out this morning. Not for Michigan Senate. We are talking about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as the chatter about a 2024 presidential run is growing even louder. Plus, your husband was asked in an interview if he was running, and he joked that he had to call you to find out. So we're going to the source. Uh (laughs) Where do things stand? When's an announcement coming? Well, I guess it's official now because she's going to make the announcement for him. (laughs) First Lady Jill Biden coming up. My intention is from it hasn't been done from the beginning to run, but there's too many other things I have to finish in the near term before I start a campaign. Is your age part of your own calculation into whether to run again? No, uh, but it's legitimate for people to raise issues about my age. It's totally legitimate to do that. And the only thing I can say is watch me. How many times a man have to answer that question? President Biden hinting that the launch of his 2024 re-election bid could be just around the corner. So what does First Lady Jill Biden think about that? It's Arlette Sines. Travel with the First Lady to Africa on her recent five-day tour addressing drought and hunger in the region. She sat down for an exclusive interview. Arlette Sines joins us now. So... Good morning to you. So 
Is he or isn't he? Because he says he's got to consult with the first lady and you got to ask her. So tell us. Well, Don, Jill Biden, of course, is a key figure for President Biden and so many of his decisions. And we had a chance to talk with, to her about a host of issues, including that possible re-election bid. And while she says no announcement plans have been finalized, in her mind, she essentially believes the decision has been made. Take a listen. Your husband was asked in an interview if he was running and he joked that he had to call you to find out. Was this recently? It was recently. Oh. <laughs> I must have missed it. So we're going to the source. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, where do things stand? When, when's an announcement coming? Well, he said he intends to run. Um, so nothing's been planned yet. I think, you know, he's been so busy with um, being in Ukraine, uh, handling some of the crises at home. Uh, so I, I think, you know, he's not He's putting that first. He's putting America's business before he's putting his own. But has the decision been made amongst the family that he's going to run? Well, it's Joe's really, it's Joe's decision. And we support whatever he wants to do. If he's in, we're there. If he wants to do something else, we're there too. Is there any chance at this point that he's not going to run? Uh, not in my book. <laughs> You're all for it. I'm all for it, of course. So as we're reading all of these tea leaves, this is just another indication the president is moving closer to launching a possible re-election bid. Of course, his advisors have pointed to the coming months as a possible launch date for that. And you spent time with the first lady, as I said in the introduction to you, as she traveled through Africa. Tell us more about that. That's interesting. Yeah, we spent the last five days traveling through Africa, stops in Namibia and Kenya, where the First Lady really talked about a host of issues, including women's empowerment, the importance of young people and democracy, and also talking about some of the government programs that have aided Africa, including PEPFAR, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary. But perhaps the most poignant moment came yesterday when she traveled down to rural, a rural village in Kenya to see firsthand the impact of drought in the region. There were hundreds gathered there to receive health and nutrition services, and the First Lady got to hear firsthand what these people were experiencing. And as we were there every step of the way, and we'll bring, be bringing that to you a bit later this week. Oh, interesting. Thank you very much. I don't know if you guys have gotten, or like we're going to, we'll be Can't watching a special. Can't wait to see that. But <laughs> if you've ever gone to Africa and gotten to see what PEPFAR does, it is astounding. It is astounding what um, the power of a United States president, what it, yeah, what it can do. Yeah, that's a great point. By the way, you can watch the rest of our Let's wide-ranging interview with First Lady Jill Biden, seen in prime time. Jill Biden Abroad airs on Thursday, 9 p.m., of course, right here on CNN. Can't wait to watch that. And for more on what Joe Biden told Arlette there, let's bring Thank in you. CNN's chief political correspondent and the co-anchor of State of the Union, Dana Bash. Dana, anyone who has ever covered Biden knows that the probably biggest influence on his decisions is the first lady. So what she says there carries a, mm -hmm. a lot of weight about what we could see happen with his 2024 run. So he's definitely running. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, unless he's not. First of all, good morning, guys. Good nice morning. to see you. Uh, not only does she carry, like, the ultimate weight, but the other thing that you all know from covering Joe Biden for a long time is that he's not generally in a rush to make decisions, especially big, consequential decisions, which is um, part of the reason why it's taking as, as long in the view of some Democrats as it is. I'll tell you what I'm hearing from uh, sources in Biden world, and that is the following. Uh, just like you just heard from the first lady, he's been very focused 
on all of the uh, the international uh, trips and 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 uh, and policy that he's needed to focus on as the year anniversary of Ukraine approached, and just on the raw politics of it, um, they insist that because he is not likely to have a significant primary challenger, um, there's no rush to jump in. They look at the calendar and the history, most recent history, uh, of a, of a two-term president, and that is his former boss, uh, Barack Obama, that he didn't announce until around now. The thing that is missing, as far as we know, though, is the kind of behind-the-scenes movement um, that generally happens or the, um, the sort of uh, checking out of the White House and checking into a political world from people who are close to him. We haven't seen that happen yet. And that is a bit surprising. Is it because, though, I feel like he's taking sort of the diplomatic road rather than the traditional I'm going to run for president mode because he's using it as, you know, traveling to Ukraine and what have you. And maybe that's his best bet right now is that, hey, look, I'm in charge and I'm leading already. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. And, and look, there is frustration uh, among a lot of Democrats, especially those who are reluctant uh, to see him run because really for one reason only, and that is because of his age. Uh, and they're thinking, well, it, it, maybe he won't announce. And if he isn't, uh, you're leaving the Democrats who are going to start to need to build campaigns uh, a little bit on in a lurch. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's no real indication, particularly what we heard, uh, given what we heard from the first lady to our our let signs, that plans have changed. You had a really enlightening, I thought, eye-opening interview with the RNC chair, Ronna uh, McDaniel, after her fourth, uh, you know, win to lead that yesterday. And this exchange was striking about whether they will again call for a loyalty pledge for the eventual nominee. Listen, I want our viewers to hear this and get your thoughts on the other side. We haven't put the criteria out, but I expect a pledge will be part of it. It was part of 2016. I think it's kind of a no-brainer, right? If you're going to be on the Republican National Committee debate stage asking voters to support you, you should say, I'm going to support the voters and who they choose as the nominee. I want you to listen to what former President Donald Trump said a couple of weeks ago in an interview with uh, conservative radio host Hugh Hewitt on this very topic. If you're not the nominee, will you support whoever the GOP nominee is? It would depend. I would I would give you the same answer I gave in 2016 during the debate. Uh, it would have to depend on who the nominee was. So are you prepared to block the former president? Well, he, he signed it in 2016. I he know. did. Everybody signed it in 2016. But this is about the here and the now. Yeah, he didn't I, commit I to it. I think they're all going to sign it. I really do. She really uh, remember when she said to the beginning of the interview, I ran on a unity platform. Mm-hmm. She really mm-hmm. sounds like she believes it. Unity. It's going to be all good. Everyone on the same page. What do you think? I think that is definitely her goal. Um, I've heard from um, at least one uh, potential candidate after that uh, concern that in her in her effort to create unity among the candidates by asking them, forcing them to sign a pledge in order to get on the debate stage, it will inherently uh, cause fracture. Because of the other thing that I talked to her about, which is the elephant, no pun intended, in the room, which is the fact that we're talking about the former president here. And we're talking about a former president who has uh, been disqualified from being president again in the eyes of several potential 
candidates for president. And the feeling is, among some of them, how can I sign a pledge promising to support him as the nominee if he is the nominee, if I don't think he should be president? And it's going to be a very tough thing for some of these candidates who are going to have to decide from their perspective if they are going to put country first or party first. And that is kind of the calculus that is going on, not among all of the Republican candidates who are not Donald Trump, but among some of them. Never mind the question that I put in the clip that you played about Trump himself, whether he will actually stick to any kind of pledge. They signed pledges in 2016. It's not really clear that they actually lived up to it. I mean, John Kasich signed that pledge to get on the debate stage and he never supported Donald Trump. Just one example. Yeah, it's a great point that it's not just about Trump and what he does. It's also what Asa Hutchinson and others. One fascinating part of this interview, I thought, was where she brought up the fact that she's Mitt Romney's niece, something that we saw her downplay (laughs) uh, at times. And she said, I'm Mitt Romney's niece. I was appointed to the RNC by Trump. She goes, I would support both of them if they were the nominee, but I don't know if they would support each other. Talk about how damaging all of this is for Republicans generally, that they're not, uh, that they don't know for sure that they'd support who the nominee is. Yeah, I really thought that was interesting as well, um, because uh, she was trying to make the point that she is a unifier and she is somebody who can kind of see broadly uh, on the entire Republican spectrum. Uh, But look, again, it is damaging because we're talking about the influence of one man, and that is Donald Trump. If Donald Trump were not part of this equation, and you're talking about Ron DeSantis, Asa Hutchinson, Chris Sununu, you know, Chris Christie, name your candidate, they would all be fine with signing a loyalty pledge. This is about Donald Trump and about the events of January 6th, full stop. Yeah. And the Trump campaign said they don't have to worry about this because they think he he's going to be. be the nominee. Of course. Dana Bash, uh, fascinating yeah. interviews as always. Thanks, Thank guys. Good to see you. Dana. It looks great. Thank you. She always <laughs> does. Did you see her glowing in white yesterday? <laughs> Just come here for your compliments. All right. Um, one fil- Harry thought that was funny. Thanks, Harry. One film swept last night's SAG Awards, but did anyone actually go to the theater to see it? I can't wait to see it. Caitlin saw it. Harry Enton is here to break it down. And I saw it in theater. If not, a lot of people. And the actor goes to everything, everywhere, all at once. Okay, so everything, everywhere, all at once seemed to win, well, everything at the SAG Awards. <laughs> but did you pay to see it in theaters? It begs the question are award shows really out of touch? The question is, too, Harry. Where can you even watch the right, award shows? I was that. saying, I, like, I was trying to watch the Image Awards, didn't know where I could watch them, watch SAG Awards, didn't know where I could watch them. So if you can't watch the awards and watch the movie, I don't know. You need, you, need a, you need a TV guide, Don, but look. It's not on TV! Or it's streaming. Well, let's say it's streaming. Just go online and type it in. That's what Google <laughs> is for. Uh, okay, this morning's number is 26. <laughs> Everything, everywhere, all at once. The Oscar Best Picture favorite... 26th in domestic box office for 2022 releases. So there were 25 films that ranked above everything, everywhere, all at once in terms of the domestic box office. Now, you might be wondering yourself, is that a high number? Is that a low number? Are the films out of touch uh, that are being nominated? So where do Oscar Best Picture films rank a domestic box office in a given year? Since 2009, look at these nominations. 62nd, that has been the median rank. 62nd 
Compare that to 1980 to 2008, where they ranked 11. So it seems to me that the Oscars have this almost ballooning problem whereby it used to be, look, it wasn't that they win the best picture, the best picture, not the best picture film would be in the top of the box office, but at least be near the top. That's not the case anymore. Hmm. Okay, so do people even go to the movies anymore? Yeah. So here's the thing, though. Do people actually go to the movies anymore? Saw a movie in the theater last week. Look, in 1950, 33% of Americans saw a movie in the last week. Wow. But look at this trend. 10% in 68, 8% in 95, 3% in 2013. In 2022, just 2% of Americans saw a movie in the last week. And compare that to streaming or being on TV. Or Yeah, look at this. Watch a movie at least once in the last week, week via paid streaming. Look at that. 58% of Americans wow. watched at least one movie per week via paid streaming. Look at paid TV. 52%. So a majority of Americans are still watching movies, but they're watching it, in fact, on their televisions. They're not going to the movies and watching it in person. Of course, I do have to ask the question, what is video entertainment anymore anyway? Because we have YouTube, about 65% of adults and 90% of teens use it more than once weekly. And we have TikTok, which is even shorter, right? About 25% of adults and 65% of teens use it more than weekly. So I'm not sure box office really tells us much anymore anyway, guys. Yeah. Mm. I'm a YouTube. I watch a lot you of do? YouTube TV. Yeah. I very rarely do. I- it's good stuff. You went to the movies on Friday, though. I... <laughs> 4.50 p.m. screening of Mummies with my kids. And my husband well, goes, counts. my husband goes, I wish we could be watching something else. We don't get time to go to adult movies. But yes, it sort of counts. Sort of counts. <laughs> yeah, right? Harry Thanks, Harry. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Harry. Do you suffer from the Sunday scaries? Well, a new TikTok trend aims to put an end to the suffering. We'll tell you about Bare Minimum Monday coming up. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Here for it. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, like. All right, Damian Lillard has developed a reputation during his 11 year NBA career in Portland. It's called Dame Time. And last night, the Houston Rockets felt the full force of it as the seven time All Star scoring 71 points last night. Yes, 71 points in that game. He was scoring at will from inside, outside, way outside, from the logo. At half court at one point, Lillard became just the eighth player in the NBA's history with at least 70 points in a game. He is the oldest to ever do it at the very young age of 32. Here's Dame after the game. We got, I think, 23, 22 games left after this. Um, And we need to win as many as possible. And, uh, you know, obviously being shorthanded, I know that it's going to be a team effort, but I feel like I got to, you know, do my best to be aggressive uh, and just try to do what I can to make sure that we get some wins. And, you know, that's all the case was was tonight. I wanted to be in attack mode. I got it going, and I just stayed aggressive. He was definitely in attack mode. He was definitely aggressive. Lillard led the Blazers to their 29th win as they are trying to break into the playoffs, as he noted there, down to the final stretch of the season. Awesome game. Love that. Game time. Love this next one. Can you relate to this? Watch. I gotta get out of here. I think I'm gonna lose it. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Uh-uh. <laughs> well, according to a new TikTok trend, <laughs> Mondays should actually be about doing almost nothing as little as possible and not feeling bad about it. This is something called bare minimum Monday. 
You knew it was time for something new. So one Monday last year, you woke up and gave yourself permission to do the absolute bare minimum for work that day. And everything felt different. The pressure was gone. Your work was easier. And you felt better. <laughs> Our chief physics correspondent, Christy Romans, is with us who know, you know nothing about. <laughs> Yeah, the irony Bare minimum of Monday. the four of us <laughs> talking about this at 8.53 on a Monday. Right. It's a thing. It's a real <laughs> thing on TikTok. And there are a lot of young workers who are saying, look, the Sunday scaries turn into this unproductive, anxiety-ridden Monday. Monday is the least favorite work day of the week. And so they're focusing on a little bit of self-care. They're easing out of the weekend and into the week and saying they're going to do the very bare minimum. It's the latest in, remember, quiet quitting. There's also something called rage applying, which is where <laughs> you are... Uh, ostensibly at work, but you're actually applying to millions of different job offers and there are job openings. And there's cyber loafing where you look like you're busy at work, but really you're using the company uh, time and material for, you know, doing your own personal stuff, which I have actually signed my kids up for camps before at work, but that's because I was working like 15 hours. I mean, come day. on, you also like work in the middle of the <laughs> I know, night. I know. And... But listen, I asked a workplace culture expert, you know, is this just slacking? What are bosses supposed to think about this? This is actually going out there saying, I'm going to work less. And this is what she's told me. <laughs> I would say to those CEOs and those bosses who are rolling their eyes that sometimes we have to set aside what is urgent in order to focus on what's important. And that is what Bare Minimum Mondays is trying to accomplish. I think what it tells you that there are a lot of people who want a different relationship with their job, right? And they want a little bit more self-care and more time. That's what's been behind this four-day work week. But I keep hearing about how these young workers are so, you know, uh, they have, they're enlightened. They know more about how they want to balance their work and their life. And I keep thinking, well, actually, I think Gen X actually invented slackering, right? I mean, yeah. remember Garfield? Are we, are we Gen I X? I hate Monday. I'm Gen X. You're, you're, you're Gen X. You're Gen X. So I'm just saying that every generation has their, like, Reevaluate. I hate Garfield said it, but he is way before TikTok, and he already <laughs> hated Mondays. I've worked weekends um, for a long time, and I had Mondays off. It was the best really? thing ever. Yeah, I you had, had to work during the weekend. Yeah, and then uh, the late schedule. I never had the Sunday scaries because I didn't have to be at work until ten o'clock on a Monday night, and so it was fine. Now you know, I'm like ah. Monday's coming. <laughs> Sunday scaries are real. I, yeah. I love that phrase because it really is like yeah. this collective anxiety that people it feel is. on Sundays. It is, but I wonder, I think it also all reflects how we don't know who has the upper hand in the economy right now. Last hour, I was telling you how confusing everything is. Are the bosses in charge? Are the workers in charge? I mean, it's really fascinating where we are right now. Yeah, Whatever, I get excited all day Sunday to see you guys. So, you know, that's just me. Poppy. Ha it's, I'm not lying. I have happy a Bible. I'm going to put your hand on that happy Bible. Happy bare minimum Monday. Where's the Bible? <laughs> I do not believe that. <laughs> Thank you, Christy Romans. You're welcome. <laughs> see you guys tomorrow. Have a great day. What's Tuesday CNN called? CNN Newsroom starts what after. What is Tuesday? You got to go full force on Tuesday. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. 
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.